Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week we talked to Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets, to look at what's going on in the choppy share market at the moment. To check the pulse of the economy, I turn to Craig James, Chief Economist at Comsec. On politics, we talked to Lyndall Curtis, former Parliament House Bureau Chief for Sky News, ABC News 24 political editor, and now consultant. And uh, she takes a different kind of perspective these days. And for a check of big tech, I chat to Steve Sammartino, author and futurist and a regular presenter on Talking Finance. Now, to bring us up to date with what's going on in the markets, here's Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets. Well, well, Michael, obviously things have got to be choppy again. Uh, is this what we do you think we have to get used to? The, you know, fair bit of uh, fair bit of uh, volatility. Oh, longer term, there's little doubt we will see higher volatility in share markets around the globe. The withdrawal of the huge stimulus and the blanket of money that uh, central banks have thrown over the global um, financial system is being withdrawn. And as that occurs, we're likely to return to more normal levels of volatility. Let's be clear, what we've seen over the last five years is an abnormal period of very low volatility. So we're getting back to a more normal trading environment. What do you think there's a normal level of the VIX? Uh, well, I, I'd look at the Australian market, but um, uh, I know you know, rough rule of thumb as an tra- index trader for many years, pre-GFC, the uh, volatility on options around the local index ranged between 15 and 25%. 25 was very high, 15 very low. That range is now more like 8 to 18% for the Australian market. So extrapolating that to the uh, US VIX, I suspect that we're looking at 5 to 10% higher than current levels that are around 4 14%. So that'll take a bit of getting used to, won't it? As you say, it's been going on like this for five years. People have just got used to very low volatility. Um, and it's, I guess, uh, meant that everyone's adjusted their thinking about risk. Um, so I guess, do you think that investors need to rethink uh, risk and what they what they think it's like? Oh, absolutely. This high volatility is going to demand a, a different approach from many investors. And I think perhaps uh, just as troubling is the fact that we now have a generation of investors coming through who've never experienced a significant market downturn. Uh, and although we can say uh, that people should you know, make moves and, and, and start acknowledging that increased risk, the reality is that pain is one of the greatest teachers in the market. It might mean that some investors have to experience some of that pain before they will change their behaviour. Mind you, we've had a couple of 10 percenters this year, which is pretty unusual. Well, yes, certainly in recent context. So, yes, there, there is a bit of warming up to it, uh, but I suspect they're only going to increase. It does mean, too, increased volatility, it does mean we could see also very positive upswings that, that go beyond what we expect as well. It's not just on the downside that we'll experience that high volatility. What, what was the uh, immediate cause of this week's drop on the uh, on the U.S. market? It's a good a good call to, to be questioning that. I don't think there was a single uh, thread to it. Last week, we saw the US midterm elections. And after that, investors seemed to take a very positive approach to the change of control of the lower house in the US. Despite the fact that the government in the US will now not be able to put through further stimulatory measures, 
the market seemed to take this as a sign that interest rates would stay lower for longer and bought stocks on the back of it. Unfortunately for US investors, the next day the Fed came out with a statement that said they will not be diverting from their course, and that's what really seemed to start the route. But we also have other concerns, and in particular the Brexit negotiations that are grabbing headlines and investor imaginations, and of course the potential for a further escalation of trade wars is also spooking investors. And there was a bit of focus on Apple this week as well, wasn't there? Yes, uh, yes, we certainly saw concerns there around the, the outlook for their sales, and I think a lot of uh, investors extrapolated that outward. That's been offset somewhat by the release of, uh, of Tencent's um, results, um, the uh, Chinese giant uh, showing a big increase in sales. So it does appear that the world's dividing a bit, but that pressure on Apple was extrapolated to other tech stocks and also to other uh, consumer-exposed stocks, and that's another concern for investors. I wonder if that's a metaphor for um, you know, geopolitical matters that uh, China's Tencent is doing fine, but America's Apple is not doing fine. Well, I'd suggest it's in line with the broad economic trend. Yes, indeed. So um, uh, how, how do you think that investors, uh, traders are now looking at things for over the next uh, few weeks? Taking a defensive well, stance, are they? Well, yes, we've certainly seen that. And when we do see buying in the market, it's it's focused much more in those more defensive earnings. We're seeing consumer staples getting support, utility stocks, property stocks. Uh, so it certainly uh, has been a shift. It comes at an interesting time because statistical analysis back to 1955 shows us that the six months from November to April outperforms the six months from October to um uh, sorry, from uh, May to October. So we're at a seasonal shift in thinking, but the actions of investors, at least so far this week, suggest that that has not caught on broadly. Mm. Great, Michael. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks, Alan. And now to catch up with what's going on in the economy, here's Craig James, Chief Economist at Comsec. Craig, uh, the headline on your piece on the wages uh, price index this week said best annual wages growth in three and a half years, which was true. But you look through the data and it's actually 2.29% for uh, annual growth in wages. That's terrible. I mean, yeah, it might be uh, as good as it's been for three and a half years, but gee whiz, less than 2.3% wages growth is not great, is it? Well, I think it's all a case of relativities. I mean, wage growth in nominal terms has come down over time, but so has growth in prices. And I think it, it always depends on what you can buy with the, the wage rather than anything else. So if we went back to 2011, you know, so what would, well, even before that, you know, so 2010, we'd see, you know, sort of wage growth up around about three and a half, four percent 4%. Well, where was inflation? Well, it was around about 3.5% you know, so to 4%. Now we've got wage growth sitting around about um, uh, the order of um, two and a half percent, you know, that order of magnitude, you know, sort of, and um, where have we got um, inflation? We've got inflation around about two percent. So people are still in front. Wages may be growing at a slower pace than what they've done in the past, but so are prices. And this is actually not just a, a situation here in Australia. This is very much a global situation. If you go to uh, the United States or the United Kingdom, they'll have wage growth sitting around about three percent. Now, we're 
such tight job markets, they've got an unemployment rate closer to 4% rather than our unemployment rate of 5%. They've got a tight job market, but they've got wage growth, you know, sort of seeming, seemingly, you know, sort of still very much contained, you know, sort of 3%. So this is on the basis of the fact that nowadays, you know, sort of you don't have to rely on businesses locally for, for the uh, the work that you you want done. You can outsource that overseas. And we had one um, example that was said to me recently about uh, import-export uh, business in Sydney, which have outsourced all their accounting function to the Philippines. Well, that's what you can do do nowadays, and you've got to be competitive in, in this internet world. That tells us really that uh, wages growth is not going to bounce back to 4%, you know, if uh, companies are doing that. Well, yeah, I, I think we may have to get used to new realities. You know, so what we may see is wages lifting to, say, around about 3%. We might get inflation lifting to, to around about 2.5%. But that may be the, the new reality in, in the uh, globalised world, in the internet world, the fact that nowadays we can buy goods whenever we want and wherever we are. So we haven't got to wait for the bricks and mortar stores to, to be open. We can buy it on the internet. And same in terms of businesses. They can you know, sort of do... Um, the businesses locally or, or globally and uh, nowadays you have to be competitive in this sort of world. Uh, a surprising thing I got from your analysis as well this week um, uh, was actually of the uh, the Melbourne Institute Westpac uh, um, uh, consumer sentiment data. You picked out uh, time to buy dwelling in Sydney, which was at a high five-year high. That was an amazing chart uh, showing a, it, big, it is a big jump. Yeah. A big jump in that Sydney side is time to buy a home is now, and um, I would have thought it'd be, I actually expected that to be the opposite. Well, you know, the, the um, uh, Westpac and the Melbourne Institute interview something like a 1,000 people uh, each and every m- month. Um, I'm not sure what proportion of that is in terms of uh, Sydney people, but um, in terms of the sample which, which they have collected, um, yeah, time to buy a dwelling in Sydney you know, sort of has shot up, as you say, you know, so the highest levels in five years. Now, you know, clearly, you know, Sydney home prices are getting cheaper. They're getting more affordable. But the other thing that's happening you know, so at the moment, you know, so we've got a modest uptick in terms of wages. We've got more people with jobs as well. If you look at the unemployment rate in, in New South Wales, um, and um, uh, in a trend sense, uh, we haven't seen a lower level of unemployment since the, the monthly records began in 1978. So that's just a remarkable situation. There's more people with jobs. Wages are rising, you know, sort of modestly. We've got home prices, which are easing. You know, so for uh, a first home buyer, this is almost close to Nirvana. Now, I think first home buyers would want prices to fall a little bit further, but um, there's more choice out there. Uh, vendors are starting to be a little bit more realistic. And uh, is it a good time to buy, you know, sort of property? Well, you know, for a number of people, they're saying yes. I've always thought Sydney people were delusional optimists. Yeah. Uh, this kind of <laughs> confirms it, I suppose. And it's probably because of the, you know, the beaches, the beautiful beaches, the views that you get of the harbour. Uh, everyone's got a sunny outlook there, so things can't be bad. And, and there's so much that's being built around the city, you know, so that, you know, just look up, you know, sort of the horizon, you know, sort of see cranes, you know, sort of, and it's, it's residential, it's commercial, and it's a whole range, you know, sort of activities, you know, so of course the transport infrastructure is being remodelled. They have, they told me that eventually the, the, uh, Sydney Light Rail will uh, will be completed. I'm not too sure on it, but you know, said so apparently that will be at some point in time. But that's also happening in the, in the middle midst of Sydney. So, what do you think the main thing to be looking at for the Australian economy is now? What are you watching most of all? Just uh, is it employment and wages? 
Well, yes. I mean, if we think that interest rates are going to rise at some point in the future, what will have to happen first is the wage, the, the job market will have to continue to tighten. So the job market continues to tighten, wages start to, to lift, that starts to feed through into higher prices, then the Reserve Bank will be given the, the smoking gun to, to be able to lift interest rates. So in, in a medium to longer term sense, that's what we have to watch. But of course, what the Reserve Bank will constantly stress is this is very much a, a gradual process. We want to see the um, how the the decline in, in Sydney and Melbourne home prices proceeds. You know, the last thing that we want is to see uh, a very significant drop in in prices. Um, we believe that this is more of a correction rather than anything else. Home prices 12 months ago, 18 months ago, were rising double-digit annual rates. You know, rates around about 15%. That clearly wasn't sustainable. Now we've got more supply on the market, but you know, home prices are coming down basically because there is more supply out there. Uh, the higher prices have choked off some of the demand. It's not because people are losing their jobs. It's not because interest rates are going through the roof. Um, We've got to watch that situation. We've got to remember in you know, so plenty of uh, other capital cities like Brisbane, Adelaide, Canberra, Hobart, home prices are still rising rather than falling. Uh, and I think the other risk that, that we've got you know, so here in Australia is very much the global risk. The United States and China with their, their tariff war or the trade war, you know, sort of, that's the, the major issue uh, on investment markets around, around the world. And uh, yeah, that's what investors are watching. That's what we need to be watching here in Australia. Great to talk to you, Craig. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Now, for a political perspective, let's turn to Lyndall Curtis. She used to be a long-time political correspondent for the ABC and then Sky News Bureau Chief in Canberra and now a freelance consultant. Well, Lyndall, David Crowe's got a story uh, saying that uh, uh, the Prime Minister's office has privately told the Indonesians that there's a less than 5% chance that they'll go ahead with moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which shows that the whole thing was a sham, really, doesn't it? Well, it's always been the suspicion that what the Jerusalem, the moving the embassy proposal was, was what uh, we may in the past have called a cynical vote-buying exercise timed for the Wentworth by-election that it was. It was always seen as um, kind of a, a, a thought bubble more than a firm, firm policy because of the way it went about. It didn't, it didn't go to Cabinet and it did create all these consequences downstream, which the Prime Minister is finding out about now, uh, particularly having matched the Indonesian leader, Joko Widodo. Uh, there's been concerns coming out from Indonesia for a little bit that the... Uh, that the government there was not happy with the proposal and that it actually, one of the consequences is that it puts off the signing of the free trade agreement. So if he's saying that there's a very little chance that it will happen, there are also reports saying, or he's also said we'll know quite soon, so maybe by Christmas, whether it will go ahead or not. But it does seem like it's it's a proposal that's kind of drifting off into the ether. Do you think it's a uh, reasonable metaphor for the whole uh, performance of this government? Well, I think one of the problems when you when you change leaders, one of the many problems when you change leaders is that um, there's pressure to come up with new things because what, what new leaders tend to do is either back away from stuff the previous leader was doing or go on happily and announcing stuff that was already in the pipeline, which we've seen a bit. Um, but it also means that the experience the previous leader had 
it takes a while to to become experienced as a prime minister. I always I always think you look at prime ministers over the sweep of history, and the first term is usually the one where they make all the mistakes, and it's and it's not great. But by the second term, they've you know the training wheels are off, and they actually know how to do the job. The problem is we haven't give haven't given a lot of prime ministers in the last ten years second terms. So while they while they make all mistakes in the first term, they don't get forgiven for them or get to learn from the benefit of experience. That's a very interesting perspective, Little. I mean, it's uh, I suppose that's right. I hadn't put I hadn't thought about it that way, but they do make their mistakes in the first term, and, and uh, we've had a succession of first terms. <laughs> yes, and in fact, sometimes less than first terms. You know, exactly. You, you might get you might get one or two years at the job now, and I've always thought that. People tend to learn from mistakes, so actually the, the immediately chopping them off at the knees doesn't give you the benefit of that. You get better at any job you're doing because you learn from the mistakes that you make. So if, if you were advising the government, um, would you say that there's anything that they could do to win the next election or they just have to sort of, as, they, as the cliche goes, save the furniture? Well, I think I think it's problematic. If you look at them, the polls in Australia are pretty good. They picked the last election result pretty much dead on. Uh, Labor's been ahead in the polls for a very long time. So if you look at that, if if you only had one measure and you looked at that, you'd have to say that this government um, is gone. It is definitely in deep trouble. Uh, changing prime ministers doesn't help. It's it's now on its third prime minister in its second term. Um, the the. The only hope is is to do what I think the public want, which is actually to provide good government, to actually maybe leave the politics, move the politics back below delivering good policy. The problem is we're running hard up into a what is the run up to an election campaign. The election has to be has to be done by May. Um, so actually, you you could look at the prospect of. Uh, the parliamentary sitting coming up being the last one and that the government goes to an election early in the new year. So there's not a lot of time to deliver good government and you're actually moving into the more political phase. So I think it's problematic for the government. It's got a new prime minister. It's got ministers in new portfolios. Um, It's coming up to a mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, whether it wants to make that more of a mini-budget because it's thinking of an early election, I don't know. So I think... think um, they'd have to be pedalling very, very hard to to claw back the lead that Labor has. Did you happen to see Josh Frydenberg's awkward video walking away from walking in uh, Treasury Gardens, away from one Treasury place the other day? It was very awkward, and because he was walking downhill, it almost looked like he was worried about the person filming him falling over backwards. Um, it had that kind of look of a bit of worry about him. I don't know why politicians insist on making awkward videos because there are a lot of people around, um, many of them in the employ of government or in their departments, who can advise them how to make this stuff look good and engaging. I think the days of political making political videos look like the, the an equivalent of the Blair Witch program, um, Blair Witch Project, where you know all shaky and handheld and authentic. Um, I think it's gone. People expect some more quality, particularly when they're paying for it. Yeah, and apart from confirming what you're saying about, you know, um, making mistakes and, you know, being a learner on the job, I mean, obviously, Josh Frydenberg is a learner treasurer. He's just started. Um, that was a mistake. But but it also seemed to me to, con- to confirm that they're just going to keep going at the politics. I mean, all he was talking about was the Labor Party. 
in that uh, video. And all, every time every time Scott Morrison opens his mouth, he talks about the Labor Party as well. I mean, they're all just they're just on about politics all the time, not just not about government. Yes, and, and this is actually a disease which infects both sides of politics. While Labor has been putting out policy recently, they, they're pretty much, um, a lot of their messaging is about the politics rather than the policy. I think it's, I think it's the, the moment we're in. I've been waiting for politics to get back to normal since 2009, and now I fear that this is actually the new normal, where you, where you spend your time attacking the other side. Now, that's fine, but the opportunity cost is that you don't have time, you don't spend your time, selling your own policies. But as I said, we are very firmly in the realm of run-up to an election campaign, and I think the government probably sees that it doesn't necessarily have the time to do what it wants if it had a plan for a strong policy output. So what it needs to do is damage the other side, and that's why you're seeing, uh, again, a ramped-up campaign against um, uh, Labor's housing policies, which is which has been very much at the fore at the moment. Yes. Great to talk to you, Lyndall. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, as always, there's a lot going on in technology. Let's turn to Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, to bring us up to date with what's going on. G'day, Steve. A bit of news on the technology front this week. We had Apple shares down quite a lot. Uh, it wasn't. I don't think it was their results exactly. It was other people's results to supply them, but they um, certainly made people nervous about sales of iPhone. And then in China, ten cents profit jumped thirty percent. So they seem to be going fine. Um, how, how do you see all this? Yeah, the Apple one's very interesting. I think that we're just starting to get to a place where they're getting the maturation of their number one product. If we look at the iPhone as such a large part of their profit. It's now into a 10-year cycle of a product, and they're, I think, entering probably what we can call the bumper bar era, where they're not really creating a lot of innovation, which makes it justifiable to get a new phone more quickly. So, you know, the top phone there is coming in at $1,500, and it's a lot of money to get something that doesn't seem to be so significantly differentiated from the previous model. I think this year they did 217 million phones versus 231 million phones last year, and their market share has come down. It's come down in the in the smartphone business to 14.8 percent, uh, down from 14.8 percent to 13.6. And I just think they've got to a point where there's not many more people who can come into the market. They've currently got a user base of 1.3 billion phones. But again, they've got 80% of the profit, near 80% of the profit of all smartphones. So they're still doing really well. And I just think it's the market not liking the fact that they're a little bit off the growth curve and flattening out. But I can't help but think that the sell down is still a little bit premature because their margins are still so high. They do have a walled garden where people will continue to stay in the franchise. And uh, you know, I think that their share price will bubble back up. I mean, we've got to remember that this, this is a company that's valued at a little under a trillion dollars with $300 billion in the bank. Yeah, but maybe they're, with the margins coming, I mean, I think the margins are a bit under pressure and they're possibly likely to become more, uh, more utility-type multiples now. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And I think people are, are going to see that their, their price earnings ratio will come down a bit. Although Apple does trade very differently from where we see Google, uh, Facebook and Amazon. I mean, they're, they're 
uh, price earnings ratios have been as you know as, as low as as 12, 12 and thirteen and fifteen times a lot lower than most of your average technology stocks actually behave more like a consumer utility than a traditional technology stock in, in their PE ratios. But uh, um, I, I think um, what we are going to see is people to sort of calm down on expected growth rates that Apple have had. I, I really think that we're seeing the maturation of them as a company. And companies like uh, Xiaomi that's coming out of China is, is doing very significantly. And there's a lot of smartphones out there, you know, one, $200, which can compete very effectively against Apple in terms of consumer utility. So, Look, I think that um, the sell down's probably been a little bit strong, but in terms of growth of, of market share and, and sales of units, I, I think that Apple's kind of got to the maximum of where it can go in a global population. Um, uh, what about Tencent? I don't even know what they do, really. Yeah, so Tencent is it, it, it's uh, like a social media company. It's a little bit of a mashup um, of, of Facebook and Twitter and so on, and uh, has software going on people's smartphones. They're, they're now valued um, at $331 billion as their market capitalisation. Uh, their earnings per share went up by um, 15%, and as you said, they've, they've grown it at 30% this year. Um, and one of the things that, that's really interesting from Tencent is their move across into horizontal industries. One, one of the things that's interesting with tech firms is that they don't live in the verticals that industries used to live in. What we've got now that everyone is using digital information is this horizontalization of industry. If you're in the digital business, you can cut across. And Tencent are now moving into areas like healthcare and transport. And we've seen that with Google and we're, we're seeing that a little bit with Apple with their uh, smart watches and, and health monitoring. And th- their position to do really well. I think the biggest threat to the big companies uh, aren't so much their slowing growth, the big tech companies. It's probably the threat coming from China as Chinese companies enter the Australian marketplace and and the European marketplaces. And probably the other threat for big tech, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, is probably antitrust because there's a lot of furor talking about these companies becoming too dominant. So you've got those five companies have a market cap of $3.7 trillion now, which is nearly 15% of the total US share market. So that's kind of in the standard oil uh, sort of realm or the union steel when those companies got split up in the early 1900s. Is anyone seriously talking about uh, these companies, Google and Facebook, being broken up? Yeah, you have. So we had a senator in the US that recently put a proposal into Congress uh, for the potential split up of of Facebook. Uh, Facebook is an interesting case in point. They have 70% share of all social interactions on the web. And the interesting thing about antitrust is that, as we know, through the Thatcher and Reagan economics era, their, their point was that so long as prices are dropping, that, that's got to be good for consumers. But we live in a world where the product gets given away for free to consumers. So that becomes an invalid look at antitrust. And as soon as anyone grows, uh, they get acquired. Those five companies alone have acquired more than 500 companies in the last 10 years. And Facebook has a, uh, a long history of copying and, and buying competitors before they get too big. Just this week, they launched an app called Lasso, uh, which is the biggest growing uh, social app. It's got 500 million users in the last three months, and Facebook did a clone version of it just this week. And the reason they know it's growing so well is that they have apps which tell uh, people, tell them what people are using on their phones. They've got one called Anavo, which tracks how people are using various apps on their phone. So it's anti-competitive behavior through spying on potential competitors and thwarting them 
before they come too big. So there is, there's a real movement now starting in the US. The big tech need to be uh, broken up because they have too much power because their, their tentacles are going wide rather than deep in a certain industry. And that'd be a pretty easy breakup too, in a way. You'd just uh, split off uh, Instagram um, and, uh, and, the, and the other things that they own as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It would be an easy breakup. In fact, you know, Google was the one that, uh, when they became Alphabet, I think is preempting the potential risk of this by putting their driverless car Waymo division, which incidentally start next month their first commercial driving driverless cars in the US. So this, this stuff is real now. It's happened before 2020 when people predicted. And they've got their separate divisions. Uh, Facebook, not so much. And, and Microsoft, not so much. But it is easy just to carve off uh, those divisions. I mean, for investors, the real question is, would these companies split up be worth more or less? I mean, that, that's an interesting thing for analysts to have a look at. What would the relative value of Facebook or Google in their individual divisions, would those, would those corporations be worth more or less? That, that's kind of, I think, probably the interesting one. I would be flummoxed if some of these companies weren't split up within the next five years uh, as a review antitrust law. Well, you can't uh, help but think Instagram and WhatsApp would be worth more. Uh, and the, the Facebook... The, the addition of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp separately would be worth more than Facebook is now. You'd have to think that. Yeah, I, I think so. I absolutely think so. Um, what, what we're not really clear on is where the revenue is falling. I know that all of the growth is coming through um, Instagram. That, that's the real growth engine of Facebook. Um, WhatsApp uh, has, has great usage but doesn't really have the, the revenue footprint and the advertising model or revenue model attached to it. Um, but Google has, I think, something like 90% of its revenue comes from AdWords, which is its giant profit engine, which they then spawn into other areas which haven't really proven to have the profit. I think Facebook has, I think, a more delineated profit model across their platforms because they've got one business model that goes on all of their platforms, but Google maybe not so much, other than potentially the mapping, which they hire out access to maps at, uh, at scale for organizations that integrate their mapping. So yeah. that, that's actually a really interesting question that I think um, analysts need to be looking at. Yeah. Well, good to talk again, Steve. As always, thanks a lot. <laughs> always a pleasure, Alan. Cheers, mate. Happy birthday to the fabulous Kate Sobrano, who turned 52. Would you believe it? 52 on Saturday. She's come a long way from Nine Lime Avenue in Baldwin North, where she grew up, and also happens to be the name of one of her albums. And here's Bedroom Eyes, which she's definitely got. That's all from me. Have a great week.